Thank you for being here with us once again. Thank you for singing out, and I hope and pray that uh, we'll continue to sing out uh, Hosanna, which means the uh, Messiah has come, and we know that he has come indeed. If you have a Bible, we're going to open up to John chapter 6 tonight. Uh, this was uh, the next in line for our um, kind of Easter, pre-Easter series that we started last Sunday morning. Uh, we'll look at John tonight. We'll be in John on Wednesday, and then we'll be in John uh, again um, Friday and Sunday. So if you want to kind of uh, read along the lines that uh, we'll cover over the next couple of services, uh, John's the book. And tonight we'll go from John 6 and we'll jump over to John 12. So we'll get you right to the beginning of uh, Passion Week and, uh, and get you into a few days of it, actually. Uh, but before we get into the text and before we get really into the message, I, I want to ask you a question, and this will really, I think, help our conversation get started. So, uh, and just answer this to yourself and think, think through this as we kind of get the conversation rolling. Uh, according to you, according to you, because of course you're the one that's answering the question, according to you, what defines leadership or what defines influence? Uh, according to you, uh, what makes someone a prominent influencer or a leader? And, and I think I have that question up here. You can, uh, you can look at it. What defines leadership? What defines influence or what defines someone who is a prominent or maybe a dominant or in terms of the, uh, the impact they make and the, uh, the gravity of their influence or their leadership? To you, what makes one a proper, prominent, a powerful leader or influencer. In today's world, you know, the word influencer is taking on a whole new meaning, meaning because with uh, social media, anybody can be an influencer and anybody can acquire a following that uh, is bigger than uh, some leaders of, of uh, movements have had in the, uh, the pages of history. So according to you, what defines leadership or what do you think it takes to be a great leader? What do you think it takes to be a great or, a, a, you know, a powerful Influencer. Now, I'm sure all of you have responses that would be all over the place if we were to go around the room. Uh, if we were to go out into the public and just ask people walking in and out of the store, hey, what's leadership or what's influence and, and what makes somebody a prominent or a dominant influencer or leader? Um, I, again, again, I think the answers would be all over the place and, and everybody would probably bring something that would be you know, uh, you know, pertinent or important to the table. Uh, some of us would focus on outward characteristics. Maybe when you think of a leader, you think of somebody's kind of the boldness or the, the way they, you know, their charisma, the way they talk talk, the way they command the crowd, maybe to you that's the most important thing, how they kind of get people's attention. Uh, it's not much about what's inside of them, but you want to talk about the outside. And, and again, that's important, or that's you know, obviously a thing that you see and you hear, and that affects your emotions and appeals to your emotions. You know, that's really what has taken over politics, and maybe it has always been a thing that politics have really been all about. It's not so much about the, the points and the standards that they, uh, they stand for. It, it's really about the, the persona and the image they project. Uh, and again, our, our human nature, we, we, we like that. And, and we respond to that. Uh, again, maybe you would respond with outward characteristics. Maybe some of you would zoom in on the internal qualities, the internal attitudes, because maybe you see through uh, the, the, the talk and the uh, bravado. Maybe you want to see what somebody's heart and their mind is all about. Maybe that's more important to you. Now, we might point to certain teachers and coaches and bosses and politicians that we feel have exhibited the kind of qualities that are admirable, uh, that other leaders ought to mimic, uh, that someone with uh, influential clout ought 
to uh, possess and, and model. Uh, regardless of your answer, though, uh, regardless of how you answer these questions uh, or how strong your opinions and your convictions might be, uh, I, I want to ask you to at least be open to what I think, and, and this is a big statement, but I, I, I really believe this. I think tonight we're going to talk about the most powerful leadership and influencer principle in the world. And I think we're going to talk about something that changed history and continues to change the world when it is adopted and when it is applied. And, and we celebrate today, the day that we celebrate uh, is the reason why this principle is so powerful and why it has permeated uh, and, and affected the world. And it's not about the day, it's about the person that this day puts on a pedestal. And of course, that person is Jesus. Now, who is more than a great leader? Jesus, of course, was a leader. He was an influencer, but he was more than that because today we celebrate that he was not just a superficial leader. He wasn't just a talker. He wasn't just a speaker. He wasn't just someone who held an artificial office or had an artificial movement. Jesus was and is a king. He is the king of kings from heaven. He came to earth and he is the almighty one. He is the king of kings. He is the Messiah. But uh, it's not just just the day that he embraced that title. It's not just on Palm Sunday that he embraced that title, uh, though it was rightfully and exclusively and eternally his. No, it's the day, Palm Sunday is the day that he treated that title with an apparent indifference. On Palm Sunday, even though it was his to claim, and even the people that people that thought they were giving him a position. They didn't realize just how much of a position he deserved and they wanted to make him king of Jerusalem. <laughs> He's much more than that. Uh, but on Palm Sunday, Jesus responded to that opportunity with indifference. Jesus uh, you know, showed us how truly great leaders and how truly great influencers are to handle the opportunities and the power and the privilege that this world often affords them. Everything in terms of Jesus's movement, everything built up to this moment where he was paraded in Jerusalem and celebrated as the king, as the Messiah. Yet the said dressing quickly would change. As Jesus stepped onto the stage of Jerusalem, that stage would shift from being a glorious stage to a gory stage. Yet through all of that, Jesus had not refused his crown. He simply redefined the role. He simply redefined the kind of crown he was going to wear. Now, it's not just his role, as it turns out, but how any of us should handle even the slightest snippet of the same sort of power and influence that Jesus held and that Jesus still has. And I think what this day and what this study will offer us is that it reveals and highlights and it clarifies an extraordinary concept which in turn explains why a first century spinoff of Judaism did not just survive, but it thrived and it continues to thrive. But it only thrives when this principle is at the center of the movement. Even though its leader claimed no territory as his own, even though he raised no army to fight for him, even though he exercised no authority against others, Jesus and Christianity would soon outshine every political figure and every religious figure and ideology of the day and every day that would come for that matter. Ultimately, how Jesus adorned himself and how Jesus used his power and influence is what propelled Christianity and the church over and against the Roman Empire and his assorted cults and all the different religions of the ancient world, Jesus and Christianity escaped the first century and have lasted to this day. And of course, we know that he's king. He's, he's obviously God. He doesn't need our help. But the reason why Christianity and the church have persisted to this day is because this principle has been the driving force 
behind it from the very first day. You know, at first, people laughed at the methods of evangelism and expansion the church implemented. But before long, the faith of martyrs became the faith of masses. And it was embraced by his opponents and and those that formerly opposed it joined it. So today is the day we remember why this all eventually happened. Because on this day, he could have consolidated all power. He could have consolidated all the influence and clout and fame he was ever offered. And on the day he could have seized authority, he could have built an army, he could have claimed territory. He did none of that. And that's why you're here. Because Jesus did not accept the offer. He did not accept the invitation, even though it was his to rightfully accept and claim. Everything this world could offer him was right in front of him. And he said, no, 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 no. Even though he should have, according to some, even though he would have been completely right, according to God, to say yes, yes, yes. Now, last week we, introduced, uh, we were introduced to Jesus through the storytelling of John, the son of Zebedee, a day one follower of Jesus. And there's nobody better to listen to than John because he was there from day one. Before Peter, before anybody else that we know and love, John was there. He was there with John the Baptist when John the Baptist said, there's the one that's going to save the world and go follow him. And John said, okay, I'll see you later, John. I'm going to go follow Jesus. He came to introduce something brand new to the world, for the world, straight from God. And it was clear from day one that what Jesus came to establish would be radically different and a radical departure from the ways of the kingdoms of this world and the religion of his own people. The religious system and the kingdoms of the world and all the power and political leaders of the world, they were all a top-down approach, as in we are in charge and you will do what we say. But Christianity in the Jesus movement was an upside-down movement. It operated in a completely different way and it was not one where those in charge seeked or sought to take advantage of those below them, but rather it was one from the bottom up. And we'll talk about what that means throughout our message tonight. But because of how practical, uh, practically every leader, political or faith-based, who had come before had taught and led, people had a hard time accepting and embracing Jesus' different approach. When Jesus began to come on the scene and began to do signs and wonders, they automatically thought, he's just like every other leader. He wants to rule. He wants to be powerful. He wants to take advantage of everything else. And as long as we're a part of his movement, we'll benefit from it too. And it didn't help that Jesus did things that left the masses captivated and and spellbound and immediately appealed to their senses and their flesh. John tells us that Jesus was God in the flesh and that he displayed that power through signs and wonders. Uh, He saved a wedding that was uh, out of refreshments. We know that story very well. That was his first sign of the book of John. He healed an elected official's son who was near death uh, just by telling him that, hey, when you get home, he's going to be better. Uh, He healed another man who was 38 years an invalid and was waiting in line at some religious festival and was never getting any help from religion but Jesus gave him help that he never could find anywhere else so he performed these miracles and and which were meant to communicate uh the people that he was from to the people that he was from God performing signs and wonders like Moses and like Elijah did before him uh and there are a couple of points uh there are a couple of points that were this crescendo for Jesus and his following and as he kept doing these signs and wonders there were points in his ministry where people 
people were convinced he is king and he's about to start something. He's about to take over. He's about to enact his kingdom. And we want to make sure we're close to him when he does. And there were some points in the story where everybody was just so convinced that that day was just around the corner. And one of them, or the first of them, was, uh, is recorded in John chapter 6. And that's where I want us to begin tonight. Uh, as we follow uh, this all the way to Palm Sunday. John 6, verses 1 and 2, listen closely to how this is set up for us. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Now, what they saw is why they followed. Now, of course, you would follow someone that did something like Jesus was doing, and, and there would be nothing wrong with that. They saw him do these signs and wonders, and they were convinced that he was from God. But why did they follow? They followed him to a very specific end. And this was always the question at hand when it came to the crowds that accompanied Jesus. What were their motives? Because people were more, uh, you know, people thought they knew Jesus' motives. But really the bigger question about this whole movement were what was the people's motives? Essentially, there were two different categories of people that uh, accompanied Jesus. There were the majority, there were consumers, and there was a small minority of true followers. But these lines had been blurred from day one as Jesus would draw a line in the sand though on this day to, di to distinguish between those that were just consumers and those that were followers. There were those who were just in it for the next miracle. They, think, they thought we might benefit from the next one. We might need something that he offers and we wanna be there when he offers it. But there were those that recognized that he was from God and that had something bigger going on than just to cater to what their next need was. They saw him do these miracles, but they, they, they were convinced that there was something bigger behind them. Uh, the true followers of Jesus, the true, the true disciples of Jesus, they were defined by wanting more of him, not just more for them. And, and the reason why this was very difficult for everybody to get on board with is because he kept doing stuff for them and he kept giving stuff to them. And the more he did this, the more they thought, well, he's just our butler. He's just our genie. He's just gonna do what we want him to do forever and ever. That's why he has come for us. But of course, Jesus was doing all this to define who he was, but also to test the true motives of the people that followed him. Look at John 3, 6, 3 and 4, and we begin to see something brewing. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And the reason why this is mentioned, and it's going to come back later on in the story, is Passover was the, season, was the festival where Moses had delivered the people originally from Egypt. And it was also an annual reminder that they were looking for the next Moses. And every time a would-be prophet showed up, they always would cling to this guy as being the next one that was going to lead them into the next promised land. People like Joshua, David, Elijah, during the intertestament period, Judah, Maccabeus. These were people that the people of Israel would herald as a potential Messiah, just like Moses led them originally to the promised land, they were looking for their next deliverer. And every Passover season, they thought this might be the year that the next Moses showed up. This might be the year the true Messiah shows up. And they had their eyes on Jesus because he was doing things that no one else had ever done before. And 
Verse five tells us that when Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now it's important to notice that these people were coming to Jesus because they were convinced that miracles were just gonna be a common a common place with Jesus, that every time he was around a crowd, he would do something for the crowd. So here is a crowd assume, assembling unlike, you know, like any other day in any other point. Uh, now the crowds did not often see the point of the signs. They were just seeing the solution for their day, the provision for their day and, and and maybe that's why we follow Jesus, if we're just being honest. Maybe we follow Jesus, and maybe the church has presented Jesus to you this way. Maybe we follow Jesus because we're looking for what he might give us next. We're looking for what, quote, what we can quote back to him for our own gain. And what happens next, though, what happens next is the famous feeding of the 5,000. We know the story that he asked Philip, hey, how are we going to feed these people? And then a little boy shows up and he gives it to Philip. He gives it to Andrew and they gave it to Jesus. And he takes those, uh, uh, you know, a few uh, loaves and, and fish and he turns it into uh, a miraculous meal. And, and again, we know the story, the feeding of the 5,000. But now there were more than 5,000 there that day. The scripture says there were 5,000 men. There were women and children as well. But why does John focus on the 5,000 men? Here's why. 5,000 men were, was the number of the average size of a Roman legion. Roman legion would have been a Roman battalion, a Roman uh, army, or unit from Rome. John tells us that there were 5,000 men because he wants our ears to perk up and, and, and remember or recognize that a Roman legion was approximately 5,000 men strong. And here on this mountainside, Jesus has 5,000 men ready to do whatever he says. There would have been approximately 10 or 15,000 people there in total, but the men are what are focused on because, again, their motives were very specific on this day. And as he takes the few loaves of bread and couple of fish and he miraculously multiplies the food on a scale that's able to provide for 10,000 plus people to feed, uh, to eat from, Look down at verse 14 at what the story or what John tells us next. Then those men, focus on the men, the 5,000 men who would make up an army if they needed to. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, you see what's going on? This group of 5,000 men thought to themselves, Jesus is about to enact his kingdom. We're gonna be his army. We're here to serve. He is our leader. And as we begin to march our way to Jerusalem during this Passover festival, 5,000 will become 10,000 and 10,000 will become 20,000. And when we get to Jerusalem, we'll, tell, we'll say to Pilate and we'll say to Rome, look out, we're coming for you next because Jesus can do anything and he's doing what we want him to do and we want him to be our king and with us on his side how can he fail you see what's going on here they thought this Passover was their next miracle waiting to happen their long-awaited kingdom to come they begin to marvel who and begin to wonder who is this man and as much as they had their eyes on Jesus they really were thinking about themselves right? They could assemble 10 or 15,000 men. By the time arriving to Galilee and Judea, they would assemble four or five legions. And before long, Jesus would be 
king. Now, before the whole scene begins to riot and become unruly, what does it say? Jesus goes to them. He takes his disciples and he takes them across the sea to Capernaum. And the, the crowds are just completely, uh, you know, just, uh, dumbfounded. Why'd he leave us? We're here ready to go fight for him. We're ready to help him put his kingdom in, in, in place. Why would he leave us? So they get into boats and they ferry across the sea all, all across that day. And they find Jesus on the other side of the lake the next morning. And Jesus completely reads them before they even get a chance to, to really spill the beans or you know, give their motives. Jesus says, you guys only showed up because you want more food. Well, we don't want just more, we don't just don't want more food, Jesus. We want you to be king. He says, I know that. That's why I left. Because I'm not here to be the kind of king you want me to be. Jesus says, you only are here because you want more miracles. You only are here because you want more food. And they thought at first he was playing hard to get. They thought at first he was just trying to see how devoted they were. And, uh, they begin to kind of pester him and, and ask him more questions. And then, then uh, Jesus says, listen, y'all want food? You need different kind of food. You need spiritual food. And, and Jesus unloads one of the most intense sermons he ever preaches. If you want to read it from, uh, from uh, verse 22 all the way to the end of chapter 6, Jesus unloads one of the most powerful messages you could ever hear anybody preach. And of course, being Jesus, he would be the one that would preach that message. He unloads uh, uh, an amazing message about what it means to truly be a disciple. And down in verse 60 and down in verse 66, Look at what the scripture tells us. Uh, verse, 60, verse 60, it says, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it or who can accept it? And then in verse 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more because Jesus told them, I'm not your king. If you're here for the food, that's not what I'm here to do. So they say, well, fine, we'll find somebody else to be our king. We'll find somebody else to be our Messiah. But nobody would ever match Jesus. And as time would go on, Jesus would do more miracles. Jesus would do more signs and wonders. And the people began to come back and they were convinced, okay, he's just playing hard to get. He's just trying to be kind of, he doesn't want to disrupt Rome. He doesn't want to get Rome's attention. He wants to make sure that Judea and Jerusalem, you know, isn't too, you know, uh, you know, uh, aware of his plans. He's just trying to be a little more patient. We were just trying to jump the gun. So let's wait a few years and then at the right time, things will fall into place. And around 30 AD, on the eve of Passover, according to all the people that were watching him and following him, this was what they were waiting for. And they would think back about John 6 and say, we were just trying to jump the gun. But this, this is our moment. Because the week before Passover, 30 AD, Jesus raised a dead man back to life. And this wasn't just an, a, a miracle where somebody was sick in the bed, almost dead, and he raised them up. No, this was a miracle where he raised a dead, I mean, as dead as you can get, an embalmed, entombed dead man, four days in the grave dead man. He raised a man named Lazarus back to life. And, he, and, and the people closest to Jesus told the whole, the, the crowds, he intentionally delayed things so that it could be clear he has the power to raise people from the grave. I mean, come on, if we were convinced back at the 5,000, we are doubly convinced now Jesus is the Messiah. He raised a dead man back 
to life. A man that had already been buried back to life. Now, this was such a big deal that Bethany, the town that Lazarus was, was lived in and buried in, Bethany became a tourist attraction instantly. People began to travel. They were making their pilgrimage to, to, to pass over to Jerusalem. The Bible says that they began to make their way to Bethany before going to Jerusalem because they were so awe in awe of what happened at Bethany. And they wanted to meet Lazarus as much as they wanted to meet Jesus. Now, flip over to John chapter 11, verse 45, is where we'll pick up the story. Because a couple years later, as this Passover was dawning, or this Passover week was nearing, uh, this time, Bethany was a couple miles from Jerusalem. This time, the religious leaders caught wind of what was cooking. And they were convinced as well. Even though they didn't love, like Jesus, they didn't believe that he was on their side. They were convinced that Jesus is the real deal and there's nothing they can do to stop him. But they best try whatever they can because this might be the end of them if they don't stop him. Look at verse 45 of chapter 11. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary uh, and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. So Jesus gained even more followers because of this miracle. And he had thousands of people, thousands of people that were, were on his side. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. So there were some that were, you know, kind of tattletales. Oh, have you heard about what Jesus did? And of course, how can we not hear about what Jesus has done? Verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. Now, let me just kind of emphasize how big of a deal this was. They were planning the biggest week of the year. They were planning Passover, which is, the, again, the anniversary of Israel becoming a nation. This was the biggest festival of the year where they would have the Passover sacrifices. They would celebrate. Really, it would go on for a whole month because they would have uh, another festival that would follow it. Pentecost was around the corner. So for them to have an emergency meeting about some random guy, and of course, he's not random, but again, when they were planning these events, for them to have an emergency meeting about somebody like Jesus this was so inconvenient and for them to do this this meant it was a big deal and they were very concerned they were will, they were afraid that everything was going to unravel if they didn't do something to stop this stop what Jesus was starting there was a wildfire they were well aware that Jesus was performing signs they knew it was pointing to something they believed it was pointing to something that did not include them verse 48 if we let him, and again, the, kind of the silliness of their, of their wording, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If Rome gets wind of this new movement, number one, they'll punish us for letting it happen and we won't exist any longer. Nobody will need us anymore and when Rome hears of it, nobody will even know us anymore because we won't exist anymore. Verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. And it says that, therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there he remained with his disciples. So Jesus finds out and he doesn't leave the region. He just goes to a very kind of secluded town on the other side of the mountain uh, where he can kind of lay low because he had big plans for Passover week, and he could not chance being arrested before his plan could be enacted. But it turns out that the Pharisees and the religious leaders had big plans as well for Passover week, but there was also another group that had big plans for Passover week. Look at verse 55. 
And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he, would report, he should report it, that they might seize him. So there's a whole lot going on here. Don't you see it? Jesus is hiding because he doesn't want to get arrested too soon or at all, most people would think. The, 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 the masses are more interested in seeing Jesus than they are seeing the Passover celebration. The, the Pharisees and, and chief priests are hiring spies to go and see what they can find out. So finally, a few days pass and Jesus moves from Ephraim back to Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. And with Passover week on the horizon, everyone was on pins and needles. Look down at verse number tw nine of chapter 12 and listen to this little nugget. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there in Bethany and they came not only for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So again, Lazarus was like a celebrity too. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because he was living proof, literally living proof of Jesus' power. Because on the account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And can you imagine how much damage control they were, they were trying to do at this time? The biggest week of the year is on the horizon and people are denouncing faith in Judaism and putting their faith in Jesus. People are not going to go to the temple for Passover because they're gonna go try to see Jesus because they're convinced that on Sunday, he's going to change everything and all the thousands of Jesus fans were convinced that this time as Passover near this time it would he wouldn't shun the attention there's no way he did this miracle there's no way he set this miracle up to now somehow defer it or, or or say I don't want it they knew this was not a coincidence they knew that he was doing this because he was planning something big they knew he had delayed things you know the 5,000 fed from one basket that's a big deal but raising a dead man that changes everything and Jesus obviously was going to receive the acclamation and take his place as king like they always knew he would. Verse number 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Everybody was talking about Jesus. They, there was so much hype and superseding and overshadowing Passover's hype. The stage was set, spies everywhere. A plan was put in place. And as Sunday neared, they began all making their way from the surrounding towns to Jerusalem. The Sabbath was over. The festivities were beginning. They were making their pilgrimage into the city. And again, historically, this would have been the perfect week to, for anybody that wants to make a big splash to launch their movement. And everybody was convinced that this was the day they had been waiting for. This was Jesus big coming out. This was his kingdom's coronation. And oh, by the way, rumor, people began to spread that Jesus had made this statement when he raised Lazarus from the dead. I am the resurrection and I am the life. And as they begin to spread this, people begin to think, Jesus is the power of God. Can you imagine what he's about to do? He's gonna resurrect Judea. He's gonna resurrect the kingdom. He's gonna resurrect our futures. We thought we were always gonna be slaves to Rome, but now he's about to give us the life we have been waiting for. Everybody was over the moon with what Jesus' power might could mean for them and for their gain and for their futures. And, and I guess he deserved the glory as well, but they were more focused on what they might get out of this. 
And as we, read, as we read in John 6, this had been in the works for years, and Jesus knew something was up with their coming and going as they began to make their way through Jerusalem, from Bethany and Ephraim to Jerusalem. Uh, so on their way to Jerusalem, Mark tells us that Jesus had a little talk with his disciples as he overheard their whispering and their planning, as he saw one go and one come, and he began to hear them talking about the plan, and he saw them stopping at the convenience stores and buying all this parade stuff. You know, what are they up to? He knew, but he was trying to tease them out. Mark tells us that there was a little conversation that went on. They were on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and they were also afraid. Now, why were they both amazed and afraid? I think it's obvious. They were nervous. Is this gonna happen? Is this gonna work? Is this gonna be what we've always waited for it to be? They were amazed at who he was. They were a part of this movement. I can't believe it. We're in the entourage that's gonna take over the city and take over the kingdom and install that Jesus is king. But they were also nervous. And wouldn't you be as well? And taking the 12 to the side, he began telling them what was about to happen. So he gets the 12 and he says, okay, guys, we got to have a little pause. So I know y'all are big. I know thousands of people are with us, but I got to take my guys over here to this sycamore tree and we got to have a little talk. We've heard that song before. We got to have a little talk with, with me, Jesus being the guy. So he brings him to the side and he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, that's me, will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Are you writing this down, Matthew? John, are you writing this down? I don't really know if I want to write this down. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But don't worry after that, he's going to rise again. But they couldn't get their minds off the mock and the spit and the flog and the kill. But really, though, I don't think they really listened to any of this. I think they were so focused on what they had envisioned that Jesus says this to them. And it just like you, it goes when you were a kid, when your parents were telling you something, it goes in one ear and out the other. And you know why I'm convinced that they didn't listen to him? Because they had a crowd waiting on them and he had just performed the miracle of all miracles. Clearly, he was going off on some esoteric ramble. Clearly... He wasn't serious. Besides, I think they didn't listen to him because what they immediately ask after this convinces me they obviously didn't listen to what he said. Because James and John say, Jesus, can we talk to you over to the side? So the 12 are over to the side and then Jesus and James and John go over to the other, you know, more to the side. James and John said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Nice and polite, aren't you? Teacher, we know, I don't know if you know this, but we've got this big plan and we've got a big event that's gonna happen tomorrow. So we want you to do for us a special, you know, extra thing that you're gonna do for everybody else. We want you to give us a little bit of extra favor and extra attention. How about that? Now, hey, Jesus, that was real deep, mocking and spitting and flogging. I, I hope that doesn't hurt the guy. But can we talk about us for a little bit? <laughs> Can you believe these guys? This is why I believe the Bible's inspired, not just because God said it is, and of course I believe that, but you wouldn't make this up, would you? In sidebar, the entirety of their planning around Jesus was about them. Have you figured that out? It was not about him, it was about them because they were not Jesus' followers. They were Jesus' consumers. They were shoppers. What's in it for us? Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And can I say something here? Can I interject something? You know why people walked away in John 6 
and why the same people planning the parade would run away in a few days. It's the same reason, it's the same excuse that people give up on faith and walk away from faith today. They say, I'm just not getting anything out of it. Ever heard that before? Have you ever said that before? I'm just not getting anything out of it. I left because, I mean, what was there? Nothing was there for me. As long as we think it's about getting something out of it, we haven't ever really got it. Standing in front of the light of the world, all they could think about was their own stomachs, their own wallets, their own benefits. Can you believe it? Of course you can believe it because we've all been there, haven't we? So many of us are still just in it for the food. We hear Jesus pour his heart out and our response is like James and John, asking for their wishes to be granted. And again, Jesus doesn't even chastise them for completely tuning him out. He plays along. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Hey, now that we got your attention, will you grant us to sit on your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom? Hey, Jesus, you're about to become king. We know, we know what's going on. You're about to become king. Will you make sure that we get special attention over the other guys? Because they all think they're going to be your right and your left, but we really, we know that we're going to be. John says, hey, I was there from day one. Of course, I'm going to be at your right or your left. They already were living on the other side of what they envisioned would happen over the next couple of days. And then Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. He was a lot more polite than I would have been, right? And the other disciples hear this and they become indignant because they think that James and John are are really going to get more benefit than them. And it's all this selfish scheme. Jesus just waits as they fight. He halts the procession once again because they begin to bicker as they, begin, as they keep making their way toward the city. And this time I think he talked a little louder and a little slower because they still didn't get it, but they would. They would. And this is so powerful and this is the whole point of our message tonight. Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, as in they make you aware that they're in charge and that you've got to serve them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. And everybody in the crowd said, of course, that's what they do. That's what we're about to do when you become our king. You're going to be king and the Gentiles and all the other leaders are going to be under you and they're going to be under us. And we're going to rub it in their faces like they rubbed it in our faces, Jesus. We got how we can see how this is going. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be a slave of them all. And everybody begins to look around saying, "Uh uh-oh, what's he doing? What's he doing? This isn't part of the plan. We've heard this sermon before, but this time it's even more serious, even more clear, even more not what we want. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, you're just just being modest. We understand. You've given so much to us. We, We appreciate it. But you're king, Jesus. And we're about to make you the king of Jerusalem. And nobody's gonna be able to stop us, or you, I mean, once this is all over. So they make it to the city the next day. And John verse John 12 verse 13 through 19 tells us what happens. 
They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things were written about him, that they had done these things to him. So they would have given him a stallion, but Jesus said, I'll take the donkey. And that wasn't part of the plan, but okay, we'll go along with it. Therefore, the people who were with him when he, called, when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders are watching this parade from the Temple Mount. And look at what they say. You see that you are accomplishing nothing. The world has gone after him. And they watch this parade and they're convinced, this is our funeral. There will be no more Judaism. There'll be no more temple. There'll be no more Israel as we know it once he finishes this week, once he installs himself. We can't stop him. He is too powerful. But Jesus turns around and preaches another sermon like he did to Mark, like he did in Mark's gospel to the whole crowd about sacrifice and laying his life down and kills the mood and kills the party and everybody leaves dejected. There's still some hope that maybe he's just waiting till later on in the week and he's trying to dismiss the Pharisees' suspicion. But by Wednesday, Jesus has completely ghosted the crowds once more. He takes the disciples to an upper room. Nobody knows where he is. Nobody can find him. And people are starting to give up and starting to think that he's not gonna actually show up to the other festivities they have planned. They didn't know what was gonna happen. They maybe thought, hopefully on Friday, he'll do something. But Jesus tells the disciples, we're gonna celebrate Passover and then we'll get to Friday. And then it's on that Thursday night that Jesus completely changes everything. Their, their last bit of hope of what they expected is completely unraveled when John 13 takes place. We'll close around this passage. You've heard it before, but let's read it again. John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Or he began to love them to the full of measure of his, show them the full measure of his love. Supper being ended, the devil having already put into Judas's heart, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, or given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, he was going to God. He rose from supper, laid aside his outer garment, took on a towel, girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel which with he was girded. And you gotta, you gotta understand, as they saw him begin to rise and adorn himself, they saw him begin to wash their feet. They were completely humiliated. They were completely stunned. They also were well aware that this was not going to go as they thought it would after all. The hands that could command nature just washed their feet. And with everyone being completely speechless, Jesus leaves an undeniable impression on them forever defining the heart of his ministry and their mission. Down in verse 13, Jesus says, you call me teacher and you call me Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet as in put yourself under everyone else as their servant, raising them up. You are to look to them as if they're better than you. I did not come to be a king that's going to be served. I came to serve. And as I have served you, you are to serve others. 
If then I, your Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know what Jesus does in this moment? He forever establishes that we can't use who we are as an excuse to not serve anyone anymore. We can't use who we are. I'm t- I don't have to do that. I'm too good for that. I'm too big for that. I'm too powerful for that. You don't know who I am? Jesus says you can never use who you are because he gives us the platinum rule. Do unto others as I have done, as Jesus has done unto you. And this is what would define Christianity going forward. No more, it would no longer be, or it would never be about powering up, lording over others, not about taking, using, or manipulating, but about pouring themselves out and powering down for others, giving, serving, and honoring others above themselves. This is the heart of the Christian faith. As demonstrated in Jesus seeing the throne set before him on Palm Sunday and choosing the cross, Jesus told them, this ain't my first rodeo, guys. I know y'all offered me the red carpet to fame and fortune, but do you know that I was offered that once before? Not in John 6, but before that. Y'all weren't there. I was all alone. And the devil showed up. And he took me to a high place above all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to me, to you I will give all this authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me. Satan said, hey, I've got the ability to give out all the power I want, whoever wants it. If you will just worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus said, that's not why I came. I don't want your power. I don't want your kingdoms. I am here to serve my God. Can you imagine how the disciples felt in this moment? You aren't the first to offer me the keys to the kingdom. I don't want them. Of course, I've already got them. I could get them if I wanted them, but I didn't come for that. And as I rebuked him, I rebuke you. Jesus already had a throne in heaven, but he left that throne. He left the glory of heaven for the gory Roman cross. What Jesus does in in verse four and five, when he takes his outer garment off and takes on a robe, that's what he did when he came to earth. He took his outer garment of glory and put on a robe of human flesh. He says to his disciples, follow me and walk in my path and serve the world with the same heart. It counters every idea and institution of the world, but that's because it's from another better world. This is how God's kingdom operates. This is what leadership and greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. And he says at the end of that chapter, those famous few words, this is a new commandment I've given to you. Love one another as I have loved you. And by this all will know that you are mine. Not by your power, not by your wealth, not by your righteousness, but by your love, they will know that you are mine. This is how you'll change the world, and that's exactly how they did. The other's firstness of the church, at first it was appalling, but it was quickly appealing and contagious, and that's what changed the empire from the inside out. 
That's what Palm Sunday is all about. It's about a day that we dream of our ascension and seizing the glory and the power and fame being turned upside down by a choice that we make because of a choice that Jesus made. When it dawned on him that he had all the power and could consolidate even more, he laid it all down and refused what was offered to him. He laid his life down for God's glory, for others' good. That is Christianity. That is the kingdom of God defined. So in closing, I'll ask you a question I've asked you before. What do you do when it dawns on you that you're the most powerful, influential person in the room? You do what Jesus did. You lay it down and use it to raise other people up. That is Christianity. You say, how can I leverage me for you? That is our story. That is our calling. That is what Palm Sunday encapsulates. Jesus shows us the heart of God in a way that nobody expected it to be shown. Palm Sunday reminds us why we can be saved and how we are to live now that we are saved. Free from the world's cycle of an obsession with consumption, focused on following God and building his kingdom. That's what Palm Sunday teaches us. And that's what God's love poured out requires of us. We're not here to be kings or queens. We're here to serve the risen king. And now that we're saved, emptied of ourselves, filled with him, we are to have the same mind in us that Jesus had. He saw the throne and he said, no thanks. I'll take the cross. That's why we're saved. And he says to you and he says to me, as I have put you first, put the world first. If you want the church to have the power that I offer it, do as I have done to you. So when somebody asks you, hey, what's Palm Sunday all about? It's the day that Jesus saw that he could be king. He said, I don't want it. I'll take the servant's towel. I'll take the Roman cross. He exchanged gore, glory for gore to save sinners like us. And to define Christianity, to change the world. That's what changed it once. And that's what continues to change it forever. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder of what our faith is all about. Lord, there's so many ideas and there's so many opinions about what Christianity is all about. But Lord, thank you for just showing us through your life what it means to follow you. Lord, we celebrate Palm Sunday because you are king. Of course you're king. Of course you are the king of glory. Of course you are on a throne above all thrones. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you are Lord of lords. But when you had the opportunity to take that here on earth, you didn't want it. You didn't take it. You laid it down to raise us up. Lord, may we respond to this call over our lives as you have served us. May we go to a world and serve them so that they might see you in us. That's the only way they will. May we not forget that. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. And we, may, we pray this week would remind us of who you are while we are saved and how we should live now that we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.